Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. For Martin Luther King, the Jobs and Freedom March in Washington, D.C. on August the 28th, 1963, was personal. His paternal grandfather was a sharecropper. And though he, like all sharecroppers, worked a lot of hours, he earned very little. And so his father, one of ten children, was raised in relative poverty. The second of ten children, at the age of 16, he left his home to find work in in Atlanta, Georgia. And he left with only a sixth grade education and a pair of shoes to his name. He married, had three children. And though they did the best they could to raise their children, their children were raised in a culture and an environment where racial inequality and racial injustice was the norm of the day. So King grew up seeing and experiencing and realizing that was his normal. And probably one of the most defining moments in Martin Luther King's life came as a high school student when he went to a speech contest and competed with people all over the state of Georgia, and there he won second place in that speech contest. But it was when he boarded the bus to go back to his home and realized that he had to stand on that bus so that all of the white people could have a seat, that things began to become very focused for him. It was his own experiences that shaped his life and the trajectory of his future. And for Martin Luther King, he didn't just give his time and energy to a mission. He didn't just give his heart to a dream. He gave his very sweat and literally his blood. He gave his life because of a dream. It's one thing for us to feel compassion for those who have experienced race inequality, or racial injustices. It's quite another thing for you to be the victim of that. It comes really close to home. It's one thing for you to hear the story of someone that you know that has received an unfavorable medical diagnosis. It's another thing when that unfavorable medical diagnosis is your spouse. All of a sudden it becomes really really personal. And so on October the 19th, 2012, we were seated as a family celebrating my wife's birthday. And we were watching a movie together, and she happened to pick up her iPhone and began to look and notice she had an email from the medical clinic, and she pulled it up, and there she went to a report online that told her and said the words, malignant breast cancer. I'll never forget the start and the stop in our room when we paused that movie and we just, as a family, just try to absorb what it was we were hearing. It's one thing for us to hear about that kind of diagnosis in somebody else's family, but it's another thing when it becomes your own family. It becomes really personal. Now, the good news on that is this fall will be five years that Kelly has been evaluated since her treatment 
And this fall will be five years that if she gets a good treatment, a good diagnosis, she will be declared medically clean and cancer-free. And we give God thanks for what he's done in her body. We're grateful. It's one thing for us to feel compassion for children when we hear about heartbreaking situations or children that are suffering. It's a completely different thing when it's your child that is suffering. So Christmas Eve, I got a phone call about 9.30 that was completely unexpected. My daughter Aubrey, who's here in the front row this morning, and her husband Eric, who's not seated next to her, for the record, um, they were with us, uh, came on, De- on uh, December the 22nd, and were with us uh, in our home. And on the 23rd of December, we celebrated our Christmas with our family. And then she went with Eric, her husband, down to Centerville, and they spent the next day on Christmas Eve day with his family. They then came, and Aubrey was part of the band that night at our Christmas Eve services, two services. She was part of singing that night, coming off of two great days with family, coming off a tremendous high of our Christmas Eve gathering, celebrating the birth of Christ. And about 9.30, she opened the door of her home, And she stepped into the front door and into water that came up under her feet and knew immediately they were in trouble. When you have a ranch home, no basement, and you step into the water on the main level, you know there's a problem. They were gone for two days. They had no idea what happened and quickly began to realize that uh, there was a pipe, um, one of the pipes that went to the toilet that broke, that burst in the back bedroom, their their master bedroom, and had completely flooded the main level of their home. And she called me hysterical. She could hardly talk. She was inconsolable on the front end of that conversation. My heart just went out to her, and I said, Aubrey, we will do everything we can because they were so looking forward to celebrating their first Christmas morning with their kids, doing their new normal, their kind of creating a family tradition for them of putting those gifts under the tree for the first time so those kids could wake up Christmas morning to their Christmas day. And it wasn't simply meant to be that way. But we did what we could, and we got a restoration company in there within an hour, and things began to get put back in order. And it's been honestly a joy to have them with us for the last three weeks as our house is kind of under renovation here. But, but, but listen, when something comes to your family, to your home, when you personally experience something, you pray with more passion, and you act more decisively and definitively, don't you? When it comes to the mission and the vision and the values that Jesus has for our life, Jesus wants us to make it personal because it is personal. There's a verse of Scripture that has informed our vision here at Grace Crossing Church. And I want to share it with us this morning. It's Micah, chapter 6, verse number 8. And here's what it says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? Did you catch the personal nature of God's vision, God's heart for our lives? I want you to read it with me together out loud. Are you ready? Here we go. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. 
And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Notice it's what he has shown you. It's what he requires of you. It is our relationship with our God that matters. And so we've invited our church family for the month of January to pray into our vision, mission, and values. We provided prayer guides for everyone here over the last two weekends. If you did not receive one of these, you can pick up a copy this morning at our giving boxes or at the Connection Center. You can also find them on Facebook at Grace Crossing Church's Facebook page. We've posted it out there as well so that you can have access to this prayer guide. But this week, we've been asking our church family this past week to pray into our vision, which we spoke about just the first part of last weekend. But I want to give you the final part of that vision. Here it is. This is our dream. This is our vision for Grace Crossing Church. Let's read it together. We see an emotionally healthy church filled with fully surrendered Christ followers whose hearts are set ablaze to act justly Love mercy and walk humbly with God. It was in 2014 on my sabbatical when God began to stir my heart. I was away praying for a fresh vision of where God wanted us to go in the next level, the next stage of development and vision here at Grace Crossing Church. And God began to stir my heart around that one verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And into the following year, God really began to sear this into me. As I was praying, God, is this a burden for me? Is this something that you're calling me to? Or is this a calling for Grace Crossing Church? And I really believed as I prayed that it wasn't just a personal burden, that God wanted me to provide pastoral leadership to this church as we move into our next season of ministry together, that we would become an emotionally healthy church. We'll talk more about that next weekend. Filled with fully surrendered Christ followers whose hearts are set ablaze to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Let's unpack that a little bit this morning. I think the vision that God has for our lives can be summarized in just six words, three imperatives. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Injustice always begs for justice. Injustice always begs for action. What moved... Dr. King's heart was the injustice that he saw. That there was an incongruency between the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and what he was personally experiencing and what people in his circle were experiencing. And so Martin Luther King made it his vision, his mission, his dream to see something happen in the area of justice. And if you just read some of his writings, what you discover is that so much 
of what he spoke about was shaped by this area of injustice. Let me read just a few of the words that Dr. King penned that have to do with this theme of justice and injustice. And I quote, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Quote, Justice too long delayed is justice denied. Another quote, An unjust law is no law at all. Quote, A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. Quote, There are some instances when a law is just on its face, but unjust in its application. Quote, The time is always ripe to do what is right. And finally, right defeated is stronger than evil triumphant. So here's the question that our leadership has been praying into, that we've been inviting our church this month to begin praying into. It is the what question. What are those areas of injustice in our community and in our society, in our circles of influence, where God is asking us to fill the vacuum that's been created by injustice and bring God's righteous justice, the voice of God's justice, into those places, into those issues. God called us to act justly, but he also calls us to walk humbly. But right in the middle of that, the Bible tells us he wants us to love mercy. And I've often wondered why God didn't reverse that. Why did not God tell us to love justice and to act mercifully? He actually tells us to love mercy. And I think that's really, really important. I don't think that in life, as I've looked at my own Christian life and I've looked at the body of Christ, I don't think God calls us to do extraordinary things for him. I think what God calls all of us to do is to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. Love that we could not do and we could not express without God's grace, without God's help. It is impossible to love certain people without God's help. Now, maybe your life is not like my life. Maybe you don't have anyone in your life that you find it difficult to love. But there are some people that I just find that without God's help and without God's grace, I simply can't have mercy on them. I simply cannot love them the way that God would want me to. And what God invites me to do is to accept his mercy of his love so that I could turn around and provide that to everyone else in my circle of influence. It is not accidental. It is not coincidental that Jesus talks so often about loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Why does he tell us to do it? Because he knows we can't without his help. So I have a conviction, and you're probably not going to like it because I don't like it. 
But here's my conviction. I think we love God only as much as the person we love the least. When you think about what God called us to do, when you think about what we are asked to do as followers of Jesus, I think we love God only to the degree to the person that we love the least. And what we've got to do is ask God to give us His mercy and His grace. And so we're inviting you to pray into the the who question. The who question is praying, who are those people that God is asking me to show kindness to for Jesus' sake? Not because they deserve it, not because I feel like giving it, but because God says, listen, what I've done for you, I now want you to turn around and do for someone else. You are an enemy of God. I made you a friend of God. Now I want you to look at that person. And I want you to say, I'm bringing that same level of mercy that God would want that you've experienced in your life. We are called to act justly. We are called to love mercy, but we're also called to walk humbly. It's a very interesting word in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew language of the Old Testament, this word humble. It's actually the word picture of an eagle that has folded its wings in front of it. The strength of the eagle is its wings. And as it raises up those wings, it can fly and it can soar high above the storms even of this earth. It can sustain strong winds. It can take the eagle to places that many other birds could never fly because of the strength of its wings. When the Bible says we are to walk humbly, I think what the Bible's speaking about is surrender. It's talking about where we end and God begins. That image of the eagle with folded wings is an image of saying, I'm no longer going to rely on my own strength and my own ability to get me to where I need to go. And I think that's what walking humbly is all about. It is about recognizing our utter and complete dependence on God. It is surrender to say, God, I no longer am going to live my life on my agenda. I want to get off my agenda and I want to get on your agenda. And I want to start to live my life based on what your agenda is for my life. And so this dream is not just my dream, it's the leadership of this church's dream. That we see an emotionally healthy church filled with fully surrendered, not just committed, not just dedicated, surrendered Christ followers whose hearts are set ablaze to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Can you see it? Can you imagine what would happen and what can happen? If there was a group of people who were healthy, emotionally, spiritually vibrant, fully surrendered to Christ, and whose hearts were set on fire for the things that set God's heart on fire. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what your life would look like? Can you imagine what this community could look like? I can. And we're believing God for it. 
We're believing that God has a vision for every one of our lives, and that vision is that we will fulfill this. Now, last weekend, we talked about what God envisions in every one of our lives before he ever created us. Before we were born, what God saw was us moving toward this, but how were we going to do it? We talked only about the first of four visions God had for us last weekend. And the first one was, was this, God envisioned that we would become his child. Now let me just speak to that real quickly by way of review. Everyone is God's creation, but not everybody is a child of God. Before God ever formed you and created you, God envisioned that one day you would cross the line of faith, that you would move from being God's creation and saying, there's God, and you would move to becoming a child of God and saying, there's Father, there's my dad. And just like your biological family, you don't become a child without birth, you don't become a child in God's family without birth. It's the only way it can happen, according to Jesus. And so where your first birth gave you an identity with your family, your second or new birth gives you your identity with God in Christ. It tells you who you are in Christ. It's very significant. And we sang about it this morning. God chose each of us to move from being orphans to becoming sons and daughters. And every one of us now must make the choice to say, I want to accept that invitation. God envisioned you being his child long before you were ever created. But there's a second thing God envisioned. And it's all about Micah 6.8 because Micah 6.8 is simply a snapshot of the gospel. It's really about what Jesus came to do. And here's the second thing God envisioned. God envisioned that you would become like his son, Jesus. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 8. From the very beginning, God decided that those who came to him, and all along he knew who would, should become like his son. Now, whenever a child is born, what is the first thing we say when we see that child? Oh, they look just like their mother. Or they look just like their father. When our granddaughter, our first granddaughter, Noel, and I say first in faith, there's going to be others, but when our first granddaughter, Noel, was born, and we looked at her, it didn't take us long to recognize that she was a spitting image of our daughter, Ashley. I mean, she looked so much like her. We could remember when we held her. And those features and those characteristics, those facial features were so similar. And every time I pick her up and hold her and every time I kiss her, I'm reminded of how much she looks like her mom. Well, listen to what's so remarkable about this verse. When you become a child of God, you don't get to choose who you look like. No child is ever given permission, are they? To say, I want to look like dad, or I want to look like mom, or I really like my grandfather's looks, and I want to look like him. Reality is this, God chose before you were created that you would look and you would take on the features, that your characteristics would look just like his son, 
Jesus. That's what God wanted you to look like. Think of this. Jesus is the prototype of exactly what God envisioned for your life. Now, you and I will never be transformed to look like God's Son in perfection. But we can begin to look like God's Son in our purpose and in how we live our lives here on this earth. And that's what God envisioned for you. God envisioned for you and me that we would grow and that we would begin to look like his son, that we would take on the features and the characteristics of Jesus Christ, that we would be shaped and molded and fashioned just like his son, Jesus. And just read the Gospels. It was not easy, the things that Jesus had to do to become exactly what God the Father expected or wanted. There's a verse that says he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and boy, did he suffer. And for each one of us, God is shaping, God is forming, God is molding, God is fashioning us, and none of us have a clue of what it's going to take to galvanize our faith. But God knows. We have a word picture of this that Jeremiah gives us in Jeremiah chapter 18. Here's what it says. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop, and I'll speak to you there. So I did as he told me, and I found the potter working at his wheel. But the jar that he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. Can I not do to you as the potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand. In early December when I traveled to do leadership training in Albania, I had the privilege of going to a one of the most ancient castles in Albania and visiting it today. It's a museum and it's a tourist place and they have several restaurants that are right there within the walls of this castle complex. And walking through that castle, one of the most striking, remarkable things that I noticed were all these pads. Some of them weren't there, but then there were some structures that were still there. And I asked my pastor tour guide to tell me a little bit about what those were. And he said, those were all private little homes that were used for people who lived within the castle walls. The castle, as many of them were built in those days, were built up on a hill so they could overlook, in in their case, the Adriatic Sea and to see if there was any threat of invasion from the Turks and communicate with the other castles. But their royalty lived. And there was one particular home that had been converted into a museum. And it was a two-story home. The top story and the top floors were for those who lived within the castle that were people of affluence, they were people of means, they were royalty, they were considered prominent people within that particular community. They had their own private home in the castle walls. But it was the lower level, it was the lower floors that were so striking to me. Because in those rooms underneath that 
upper story were all of these private little areas that were used to take care of all the needs for those who lived in the castle. There was no going outside the walls to provide for their needs. Everything was provided there. So they had a a butcher place. They had a blacksmith place. They had a place where they made and grinded out their own flour. They had an olive vat where they made their own olive oils. They had fire pits to warm the home and provide steam baths and saunas for those who lived in the upper floors. And then the tour guide took us into this room and he said, this is the potter's room. And there was this old ancient potter's wheel with the pedal underneath it. And he began to talk and there were vessels that were there uh, that he said were dated back to that century that that castle was there. And these are like the vessels that they would have been making, the potter would have been making for those who lived in the castle. And I thought of this passage. My mind went to Jeremiah 18 and I thought about what it's like as God gives us this word picture of him as the potter seated at the wheel beginning to get that wheel of our life spinning. And have you ever felt your life spinning out of control? Have you ever wondered, is it ever going to stop? Jesus felt it. Jesus wanted it to. And then the potter with that lump of clay, begins to take that water and splash it onto the wheel. What's the purpose? It's to soften the clay. It's to make the clay pliable. Have you ever felt like God was just bringing waves of things into your life, maybe heartbreak or heartache or trouble or or burdens that you're wondering, like, what is God up to here? What's God doing here? And then the potter, with those big, strong hands, ever so gently begins to form and fashion that vessel. He knows just the right amount of pressure. He knows just the right amount to place on each part as that wheel is spinning to create a vessel perfectly in his image. Now the clay has no clue what's happening. The clay has no idea what it's going to become. But the potter does. Because the potter never sits at the wheel without a finished product in mind. And guess what? God has a finished product in our mind, in his mind for us. And that finished product is that we would be like his son, Jesus. And so God brings circumstances and he shapes and he molds. And the part of this that really, really is striking to me is that when it gets marred and it's not exactly what he had intended, what does he do? He crushes it and remakes it again a vessel that seems pleasing to him. God's plans are beyond our ideas. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are beyond finding out. But one thing I can assure you of is God has a vision for you. And that vision is that you would look a lot like his son. So here's the question you can ponder this week. How do I become like his son Jesus? How do I begin to look more like Jesus? Well, let me clue you in on one way that you can't do it. You cannot do it in isolation. You cannot do it disconnected from God's family, from God's people, and from relationships. There is no way that you could ever become what God wants you to be in isolation, which brings us to the third vision God has for you. God doesn't, didn't just envision you to become his child. 
God didn't just envision you to look like his son Jesus, but God envisioned you to become a member of his body, his church. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Just like God envisioned you to be in relationship with him, God also envisioned you to be in relationship with your brothers and your sisters. With a spiritual family where you could grow in him and you could grow up to learn how to become more a reflection of him to your family, to your workplace, to your circle of influence, to those that God has put into your life. And here at Grace Crossing Church, there are a couple of things I want to tell you about this morning and and give you a personal invitation into. Because God envisioned you to be a part of and become part of and a member of his church, there's a couple of ways that you can do this. One is today we begin open enrollment for our connection groups. For the next three weekends, we have open enrollment for groups that are going to be meeting that still have room in their group. And I want to encourage you, if you are not in a connection group, I want to encourage you to go on our website to check out the groups that are available or grab one of our connection cards and just simply write down on there this morning, I'm interested in a connection group and, and, and we will contact you. Someone from our team will be in touch with you this week to help guide you into a group that you could consider being a part of. Now, one of the groups this term is focusing on a topic that I want to tell you about. It's called Financial Peace University. How many of you here are familiar, have ever heard of Financial Peace University? Can I see your hands? Okay, so a handful of you, a pretty good number. How many of you have ever gone through Financial Peace University? Okay, so just a few people. So if you're interested in learning how to better steward God's resources in your life, how to put God first in what God has entrusted to you. Then our director of stewardship, Lydia Borman, this term is going to be leading a connection group around Financial Peace University and how to better put God at the center of what belongs to him but has been entrusted to us to manage. How do we handle savings? How do we handle debt? How do we handle investments? How do we handle stewarding the things that God has given to us. It's one of the greatest responsibilities that we will stand before God someday and give an account to, is what we did with what he entrusted to us. And so I encourage you, if you want to grow your life there, this would be one of our connection groups, one of the topics, of many topics that you can consider, but here's one I would strongly encourage you to pray about getting involved in. Here's a second way you can onboard and fulfill God's vision for your life of being part of his body, to be a member of his church. We here at Grace Crossing Church have church membership, and I know that we don't talk about it and have not talked about it very often here publicly on Sunday morning. This past fall when we had a members meeting, we started to hear an excitement and a buzz among many people here that are saying, hey, how do I become a member? How can I be more a part, 
more a, a tied in part and have a more meaningful place of togetherness with the family of God. Well, we want to encourage you this morning that if you've been here at Grace Crossing Church um, and you would consider this your church home, I want to give you a personal invitation this morning to uh, pray about becoming a member, what we call a stakeholder here at Grace Crossing Church. Now, the requirements and the, the criteria of being a member are, are, are pretty simple. There's really only three of them, three words that we, we kind of use. One is included, secondly, invested, and thirdly, involved. If you are included, if you would say, this is my church family, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been attending Grace Crossing Church faithfully for the past year, then, then you meet the criteria. You can check the block on included. Invested are those who've thrown their hat in the ring and who have said, listen, I don't just believe in Grace Crossing Church. I buy into Grace Crossing Church. I want to make investment into the ministry, the mission, and the values of Grace Crossing Church. I want to be a part of what God's doing here in our community through this church family. And if you've been invested at Grace Crossing Church for a year in giving, then you can check the block. You meet that criteria. And the third one is involved. It simply means that you, are, you have onboarded onto Team GCC and you are serving God and doing something for God's kingdom here at Grace Crossing Church. Um, and if you are doing that and you are serving at some level, then you are involved and you can check that block. Now, if, if you don't check all three of those this morning, then I would encourage you to pray. Because I want to urge you that this is God's vision for your life, is to be part and to be really connected at a deep, meaningful level, a significant level, with God's family. To become part in a more significant way of God's family. You can get membership applications by going to our website, and there you'll see on the landing page, connect or contact us. Under that link, you can see membership. You can also pick them up at our Connection Center this morning. Now, there's one final thing that God envisioned for us. God did not just envision that you would become his child. God did not just envision that you would look like his son. God did not just envision that you would become a member and part of his body and family. But God envisioned that you would enthusiastically embrace and engage in his mission. Before God ever created you, God saw in your life that you would be enthusiastically engaged in his mission. Listen to the words of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 17. In the same way that you, God, gave me a mission in the world, I, Jesus, give them a mission in the world. So what Jesus here is saying is this. I did not come on my own accord. I didn't make something up for why I'm here on earth. I came with a purpose and a mission that God the Father gave to me. And I'm going to live to fulfill it. And one of the things he does just before he ascends back to the Father is he looks at his followers and he says, now the mission that was entrusted to me, I now entrust to you. I give it to you. So I want you to notice it's not our mission. We don't own it, which means it's not up for debate. 
We don't just simply take parts of it and say we don't want other parts of it. The mission of Jesus has been defined by God, and he said, here's what I want you to do. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. We are 2,000 years plus removed from the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And though the church looks different than it did 2,000 years ago, the church's mission has never changed. It has not been rescinded. It has not been fulfilled. It's not been completed. God nowhere spoke and said, listen, I'm changing the mission. I want you to move this way. No, God said, this is the mission. And so God has already decided what we're about here at Grace Crossing Church. But here's the way that we are saying it. This is our mission. And really, it is just a reframing of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. Here's the mission for us. We exist to disciple, to mobilize, and empower those whose hearts are aspire to follow Jesus. If you're here this morning and your heart aspires to follow Jesus, then we are committed to coming alongside of you, to helping to disciple, to mobilize and empower you to live the fully surrendered Christ life as an emotionally healthy Christ follower. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.